Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, I review a lot of things that came out of CinemaCon. Shang-Chi is opening this week, and we have a review, including an interview with director Destin Daniel Cretton. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 180 of Real Blend, a podcast that hopes the Jungle Cruise sequel is titled Jungle Twos. That's right, baby. The puns are back. The puns are back, baby. We're bringing puns back. And uh, so, Kev, on that note, on that note, Kev, did you know, uh, do you know Uncle Buck's, Uncle Buck's favorite horror franchise? There's a uh, character named Uncle Buck from a movie back in the day. Do you know his favorite horror franchise? You're pissing off my dog. Well, first of all, Uncle Buck is one of my favorite comedies of all time. John Candy. I love how you explained that there's a character named Uncle. What's the name of the movie, Sean? Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck. By the sometimes, way, sometimes pull, people haven't seen the movie. So when he pulls out the electric screwdriver and he goes into the room, it's such an it's such an iconic scene. His favorite car? No fra- horror horror franchise. Favorite Uncle horror Buck's favorite franchise. horror franchise. John Candyman. Yes. Oh, it there is. we go. There it is. Perfect. All right, we're warming up. I'm the disdain. I'm, I'm glad Jake got that one. Because that yep. means Jake's all in now. Part of the puns. Let's get our minds going. All right, on this week's it's show. It's like uh, in Beautiful Mind where he starts like unraveling everything. Like I find like I'm starting to see the puzzles that you guys like. <laughs> like everything's playing out in front of me now. I well, stepped on my own man. Jungle Twos uh, joke, by the way, too. It's unfortunate. That's great. Uh, let's see. So I saw a bunch of stuff at CinemaCon, which I'm going to be talking about with the boys. Uh, Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi is uh, testing the box office this weekend after Candyman did fairly well. I want to see how the Marvel fans turn out for a a new origin story. And hashtag, if it happens, we're going to have an interview with Shang-Chi and the Ten Ring, Legend of the Ten Rings director, Destin Daniel Cretton. I'll explain what that means when we get closer to it. Um, Let's introduce the boys, starting with Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. How are you? Dude, I love that shirt. If you're watching us on YouTube... I, I'm you got me so jacked for this book that's coming in a little over a year. Yes, well, November first, November first, twenty twenty two is the tentative release date of uh, with great power, and so it, I feel an enormous amount of pressure now. 
now that it's real and that the manuscript is due in January. So expect a lot of um, nervousness from me. Uh, the, in the other chair, Kevin McCarthy, Fox 5, Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. How are you? Sean, Gabriel, Jacob, good to see you all as always. I, I always do one shortened name and yeah. two full names. So, Sean, you one get the my, full, the short one today. One of my favorite uh, parts of the show is you introducing yourself to all of us or welcoming Jonathan. us to the show. Uh, and, of Love course, Gabe, Gabe Kobach sitting in the uh, producer's chair. Hi, Gabe. How are you? How you guys doing, boys? Housekeeping. Oh, by the way. Yes. Very happy to say that I have successfully used WD-40 and my chair, my new chair, which also was creaking the exact same way as the, So I, I spent so much time. I ordered one of these chairs on Amazon Basics, and it was like, oh, it was like 80 bucks. I'm going to put together this nice chair. I put it together. The first five minutes I'm sitting in it, all the crackling and the creaking and the nasty sounds are still there. So I have successfully gotten my WD-40 all, all intact, right. and they can't hear a single thing. Let's keep what it going. Kevin's not telling you is that he's just standing. This is true. <laughs> I, 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 it's like a workout pose. I'm like, I'm like fake standing. Or he's on one of those yoga balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this has been like a big, a major thing in the back of my mind for the past like couple weeks now. Is like, because Gabe was like, you got to get that fixed, and then the new chair was broken too. So. Now we're good. No more sound effects, except if I do pass gas, I apologize. Well, if you're listening to us where you get your podcast needs met, uh, first off, thank you. And Kevin's making it as as user-friendly as possible. You can also watch us. You can watch us on the YouTube channel, which is, uh, no, let's see, youtube.com backslash podcast. Give us a follow. Give us a subscribe. Give Jake's takes a follow, because he's now over 100,000 with his silver icon. Yeah, I don't need your pity follows anymore. I'm good. Oh, wow. So everybody unfollow Jake no, in- no. immediately. Did they take it away? I don't <laughs> no. know. Are they going to come knock on my door? Because they shipped it. It's on the way. Give us the button back. They just hold their hand out. Please yeah. give it give it back. Uh, and of course, the um, premium. Cinemablend.com. Cinemablend.com backslash real blend premium. If you want a ad-free version of the show, uh, two newsletters a month and a free episode every Monday. Um, we will have already done, by the time you guys listen to this, our Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, watch party. So go back to our Twitter feeds and read our reactions. But we're going to be doing other ones, Gabe. That's what I was getting to. We're going to be doing the other Indiana Jones films and potentially even some more films down the line. So we're really excited. I'm very excited for tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, uh, yeah, I haven't watched Raiders from start to finish in a really long time. So that's going to be a good... For me, it's, yeah, it's been like four months. Good incentive to to go see it. Okay, weekly poll. So we're going to be getting into um, CinemaCon after our interview this week uh but before we get to the interview i want to talk about the weekly poll where we asked people what has you the most hyped coming out of CinemaCon? kevin i'm going to give you the four options that we gave to the people um first i want you to guess what the people said and then i want you to tell me what you think of these four projects that were teased at CinemaCon. so CinemaCon is a convention that takes place in las vegas every single year it is put on by the theater owners and it's a way to hype people up for here's everything that's coming to your movie theaters and hopefully you know bringing in a lot of money for the for the exhibitors we uh put down as choices matrix 4 uh jurassic world what's the new one called dominion Jurassic World Dominion, Tom Tom Cruise flying planes, or Tom Cruise jumping uh, motorcycles? Those are the four options. What do you think the people picked? Based on how many views Sean's YouTube reaction got for The Matrix, I am going to go with The Matrix just based on pure 
uh, anticipation, even though the Tom Cruise stuff was talked about heavily. We'll get into that once we get into that after the interview. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to just go purely based on your video was Matrix 4. Now, personally, yeah. out of those, out of the four, I'm probably Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. Um, but <laughs> one, one or the other, one, either one of those sounds exciting to well, me. So. You're correct that the audience absolutely went all in on Matrix 4. 45.7%. Is that surprising to you guys? Um, it is a little it bit. kind of is. I, didn't yeah. really, I, I mean, I'm we're, we're, all, by that. we're all jacked about Matrix 4. That's not to say we're not, but I feel like I didn't really hear that, that many people talking about Matrix before CinemaCon. Or maybe I think it's because it. it's a it's an actual thing now. Like, there's footage. It yeah. exists. Like, like, I think Matrix 4 has kind of been like a, like, this is this really thing. kind of happening? Yeah. 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 But, yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about CinemaCon on the other side of the interview. So let's uh, let's get to this week's conversation, the official Real Blend conversation. This is kind of a hashtag if it happens, if only because we are recording the podcast on Monday and we are due to get uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, the director of Shang-Chi, on Tuesday. So, you know, things tend to happen uh, and they fall through. So I think you're going to throw you to a, Dan- a Destin Daniel Cretton interview right now. But if not, uh, we're going to plug in Elijah Wood, who joined the show to talk about his new film... <laughs> Uh, no, no man. Hold on. No man of God. No man of God. Thank Directed you. Directed by much. Real Blend guest Amber Seeley. Yes, who's a terrific guest. And if um, just to clarify, people don't pay for this podcast, right? Yeah. What? This is the this is the free one. This is the free one. And, and yeah. it's also crazy that yes. we can say we're in a position to go. All right, if this guest doesn't work out, we have Our Lord of the Rings star Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. We have yes. Lord of the Rings star Elijah Wood as our backup. Yes, highly enjoyable. He should be our backup every week. Hey, that would be great. He's just in the wings. Yeah. Uh, I will point out that or the trees. Sorry. we're expecting Destin's interview to go well, and that's what we're going to throw to. Um, so if we do, Elijah will still be dropping this week on Friday. You can get it wherever you get this podcast. So both of Correct. them will be dropping this week, hopefully. Yes. And Elijah's a really cool interview. We dive into his whole career from Lord of the Rings and good son and you know everything back to the future part two even though he's a very small role in that so if you're hearing this and you're not going to hear it in this episode please seek it out as a bonus it's really really cool either lord of the rings or legend of the ten rings let's find out how it happens um, we are enormous fans of this movie i want to start here though because i think a hero's on-screen costume uh, is so important. And you got to work with uh, someone who I think is incredibly brilliant, and it's Kim Barrett. Uh, she created one, one of my favorite Spider-Man costumes of all time for Andrew Garfield. I'd love to know what kind of conversations you two had uh, when coming up with Shang-Chi's on-screen costume. And Kim is a very special designer. She she always starts from a, a place of of theme and meaning, and she she really does have have a, a a purpose for every line in it and in um in a uniform or a costume and for for this um i mean it's it's hard not to also mention andy park who was who worked really closely with kim on all of the the key designs of of the um costumes in this movie and I mean, to, together they. I mean, a, a big part of Shang Chi's outfit is this infinite knot that is the design on, on the chest that um, that has has a lot of hidden meaning behind it that I won't really get into. But there's there's a lot to to uh, un, unravel connected to that costume. 
You know, Destin, uh, the bus fight is one of the most incredible fights I've seen in a film in a long time. And the beauty of that scene, as I told you, the television junket was the idea that you can actually see the action. You can see the choreography and obviously Bill Pope's brilliant and Brad Allen. Everything that was kind of put into that scene is incredible. I was wondering if you can just walk me through kind of what that scene looked like to shoot in terms of like were, there, were the walls from the bus removable, how you were getting those camera angles and kind of the importance of actually having a fight in camera without a ton of edits that we can actually see Simu doing the fights. Can you talk about the importance of that and kind of how you pulled that scene off? Yeah, I mean, that was the first first fight of, the first big fight of the movie. Um, it's the first time that we see Shang-Chi um, fight. And we knew it was, uh, we wanted people to to know what they're getting into through, through the course of that fight. Um, it was the first fight sequence that we actually shot in the movie as well. And we had shipped over those two of those uh, accordion buses from San Francisco out to, <laughs> out to Sydney and had them up on these, these mechanical gurneys that would allow them to, I mean, the, the actors had to like get sent up to the bus because it was like <laughs> 20, 20 feet in the air so that it could go 45 degree a- angles and twist and shake and turn. And I mean, I felt for them because it, it wasn't just the actors, but it was, you know, the, the background actors who were all, all a part of the entire scene. And I went up in that thing for about two minutes and I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> because <laughs> we shot in that, in that scene that scene took about a month to shoot so it was, wow. it was a lot and florian said it was uh summertime in australia too wasn't it brutally hot <laughs> yeah it was pretty hot <laughs> <laughs> um but it, it it was my it was also my introduction to action filmmaking um i i had that was the first action sequence I'd ever shot in my life. Um, wow. So it was a, a really fun process to be a part of. Um, and I learned a ton from, from uh, Brad Allen and his team who, who work very closely. I don't know if you, if, if you ever watched any behind the scenes footage with, with Jackie Chan and, and uh, how he, how he choreographs his fights, but it is very sequen- sequentially. Um, and he, I mean, I, I remember watching this footage of Jackie Chan walking, walking through the choreo of a, of a fight sequence and he would just do it with someone. And then he knew where the <laughs> cut would be cut here. And then he does the next cut here, change the camera angle here. He does the next thing cut here. And he would just, and the, when I spoke to Brad Allen about what it was like being trained under Jackie Chan, um, he he said it was it was always story first, filmmaking first, um, mm. and then martial arts close second. Um, <laughs> but but that that to me was the the defining moment of how we were going to be tackling a lot of these sequences in our movie um we didn't want we didn't we didn't want just debris flying around and punches and kicks and just eye candy we wanted narrative storytelling to be taking us through each of these sequences so so it was important that you saw clearly what these 
incredible um, physical feats that were happening in front of us. Um, but it was equally as important to make sure that the narrative was was clear to follow through each of the action sequences. Mm. Uh, Destin, when someone is elected to a, to a top political office, they are, they're brought in to have intelligence meetings to sort of bring them up to speed on all of the classified information that they need to know moving forward to be able to do their job. And I'm just sort of curious, is there such a thing as like a Marvel intelligence briefing? Like once you get this job, do they bring you in this room and sort of tell you all the secret things you need to be made aware of? <laughs> I wonder I wonder how much of that that is actually true even if when you become the president i don't know like like or do you come in and realize everybody everybody is making it up as as they go along you at least find out about area 51 yeah that's that's basically it like are there aliens that's all i would want to be president for um there you know it's I mean, not not to the extent that I think we all imagine. There isn't like this magic Marvel cookbook that that opens up before your eyes and you under. Oh, that's that's how they make these movies so great <laughs> over and over. Um, there, but there is a, a, what I found a very um, clear magic uh, ingredient to why. I think Marvel has repeatedly made movies that are so enjoyable, fun, um, emotional, and continue to, to surprise us somehow within the context of their genre, of the, of the superhero genre. Um, they're risk takers. They're risk takers, and they, um, there is a, a clear environment in that studio of um, that is – that is not fear-based, um, that is very ex- explorative, um, and they, they want each of their filmmakers to push the boundaries of each movie so that they continue to surprise their fans. Um, but I, I, found it, I found that the, the secret is less a rule book and more a, um, a very kind of o- pretty open and collaborative environment to, to be creative in. Well, that's perfect. Sort of building off of that, I'm curious if you had any kind of access to uh, the existing Marvel directors, people like Ryan Coogler, uh, Peyton Reed, um, even the Russo brothers, people who have been through it before. Did, were you able to touch base with any of them beforehand and maybe pick their brains about how they got through it? Yes, I did. Um, I I got to I got to meet the the Russo brothers briefly when we were down in um, when we were when we were down at Comic Con, uh, and they gave me a, a bit of very simple sound advice, um, which was just don't don't move on until you know you got it. (laughs) And if you, if you have to, if you have to reschedule it the next day, reschedule it and just make sure you make sure you get it. Um, uh, I, I have been friends with Ryan Coogler for a while. So I was able to talk to him before I even came on to the project. Um, I, I also happened to meet Taika in a, at a bar right around the corner from, marvel um the it was the day after i got hired and so he gave mm-hmm. me a, a a great download and a little pep talk and so yeah it, it's a really 
pretty cool community to be ushered into and everyone's very supportive. You know, Dustin, one of the things I find interesting is earlier you said it was your first action scene you ever shot. And one of the beauties of what Shang-Chi does for me as an audience member is I care about the action because the drama is so great. It actually enhances the action. The fight scenes are even better because I care about the story and I care about the narrative. And you come from such a great dramatic background. I was curious, looking back at something like Short Term 12, for example, and then looking at this, uh, while they're wildly different films, they're both still great dramas. They both still have great an emotional core to them. And I'm just wondering if you if you pulled anything from experience like a, that, even though it's a smaller film, that you could still use on a movie like this, even though it's so large. Because your voice, I hear your voice as I'm watching this movie in terms of you as a storyteller. It doesn't feel like a gigantic CGI action film. It feels like I'm hearing a story being told by you as a storyteller. So I wanted to ask you about what those experiences like were on those smaller films that you could still use narratively here. I mean, I use everything from my smaller films. Um, I think drama is drama, regardless of how big your budget is and how much action there is in between. Um, I And I, I also think that there is a, a clear tone that we are trying to capture of authenticity, whether that is the, the comedy or the drama that's mixed into this movie. We, we wanted to have characters that just felt real, that felt like my friends, that felt like your friends, that, that feel like people that, that we know and we can connect to. Um, and to me, the, the, I don't know, the, the, mus the muscles that I used uh, in in order to gain those that type of of scene, uh, authenticity and performances is like is there's no difference. Um, I guess the main difference is there's it's a giant set, so to find the intimacy requires a bit more focus and trying trying to um, forget all the green screens and the the thousand people who are sitting around waiting for you, you to finish your, your dramatic moment. Um, <laughs> but but it, it was, uh, I think coming, coming up, you know, when we shot short term, you don't have, you don't have action sequences or, or CGI to just to distract people or, or to excite people. Um, so your, um, your, those sequences are replaced by emotion or, or yeah. a, you know, a, a simple push in on an actor. And you, you hope that the actor's performance is the thing that, that will um, be the, the entertainment and the draw. Um, in this, in this movie, it was actually really fun to be able to try to weave the two together. And yeah that was something that was surprising was how much the action and the adrenaline you get from watching an action sequence, how much that can actually um, contribute to and uh, to the drama that is following um, and vice versa, how much a, a, a dramatic sequence can emotionally charge uh, an, an action sequence that, that follows it. Yeah. Uh, Dustin, speaking of, of Brie Larson, uh, about two years before she had Captain Marvel come out, you and her had a film, uh, Glass Castle, hit theaters. And I was wondering if there was any overlap in in terms of the timing of her starting to talk to Marvel while also filming your film. Like, Did she mention, like, hey, I got Marvel on the phone and they're talking to me about this Captain Marvel thing? Had you started hearing things about that while you were working with her? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew about it because her security started to beef up on our, on our movie, and, yes. and we we uh, we started to, you know, there were paparazzi who were who were aiming their cameras off of off of buildings around where we were shooting, and um, and then it it became uh, much more official when the uh, the marvel private jet showed up to pick her up and fly her down to comic con for a day and then fly her back onto set so it was it was very exciting to to see the the marvel have you been on the marvel private jet yet i mean i'm not there's not really a marvel private jet there's a lot of there's there's a number of disney private jets (laughs) i just picture a a big red jet that just says marvel on the side (laughs) this man is on a global tour he's been on a million jets at this point now um doesn't there's a scene early in the film that's sort of played for laughs and it involves funyuns and i'll let somebody i'll let the people discover what it is um but it has to do with this idea of of letting go and moving on uh and it's almost dismissed somewhat early, but that theme ends up becoming really crucial uh, to Wenwu's journey um, in, in ways that I don't necessarily want to spoil. I'll, I'll let people discover, but I want you to be able to talk about the push and pull uh, of that theme in Shang-Chi. You clearly set it up and it has a huge payoff at the end. Yes. Thank you for noticing um, that. That is a, a, to me, the, the beating heart of this story is um, how, how do we, individually learn to deal with pain um, and loss and how do we collectively as a family learn to deal with with pain and loss um, and and what I what I find um, inspiring in my life uh, is um, when I come across human beings who are not only able to push through their pain um, but who are able to transform it into an actual strength or a superpower um, to where these, these things that um, once held us down, our insecurities, our moments where we have been bullied or we've lost someone that we love um, that through the process of, of owning up to that and, uh, and learning to deal with it, we, it, it becomes a, a, a superpower that we can now, used to um to inspire others to help bring others through their pain and and so there that was a a theme that i I was very excited to explore in the context of the superhero genre cool thank you very much yeah yeah a lot of those dramatic themes in the film were incredible like my favorite scene in the movies when tony asks aquafina's character what her Chinese name is and the kind of what that brings up in terms of, uh, of, of uh, family and embracing who you are. Um, I'm really fascinated by your use of aspect ratios in your career. I, I've asked this question before to filmmakers because I find this interesting in terms of what an aspect ratio does for their storytelling. I mean, you look at Short Term 12, you're shot in 185. I think uh, Just Mercy was 185. Glass Castle was 235 and you're 239 here, I believe. And I'm just wondering what those aspect ratios mean to you as a storyteller. Like, Why would Short Term 12 be a one eight five ratio, and then Shang Chi is two three nine. Like, what does that mean to you in terms of the story you're telling? I mean, we always try to figure out like what's the best aspect ratio for it. A lot of it is location. A lot of it is um, is is the meta the the theme of the movie and what we want people to feel. Do we sometimes in short term twelve we wanted people to feel claustrophobic to feel what it was like to 
to be in that facility um, 24 seven. In, mm. in this, in this movie, um, we were definitely inspired by some of our, some of the classic um, a- Asian cinema that came before us that, that worked its way into this decision. It was also between Bill Pope and, and, uh, and Brad Allen and his team, like what, what's the best asp- aspect ratio to capture the, the movement of these, um, of these stunt performers and, and the choreography and, this was the aspect ratio we we fell on that felt like it would it would capture it the best. Um, the cool thing about this movie is you can watch it in two different aspect ratios if you go to an IMAX theater. Oh, that's right, the one nine zero, right? You get the one nine zero, and yeah, which I which I'm very excited about because we it wasn't just like a oh and and we all also release it this way. It, it, yeah. It, 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 it is a very different experience that we also put a lot of thought into because we knew we were going to release it in both ways. Oh. So as we were shooting, we knew, you know, we had both aspect ratios on the monitor and we knew oh. what we were capturing. Wow. Um, so, and I've seen it. That's in, crazy. In, That's great. Yeah. So if you watch it in IMAX, you definitely get um, more of the image. Very, yeah. You get more, you get more of the image. Um, and it's the compositions are different. Um, I I find some things in in the IMAX to be much more interesting, <laughs> um, but they're different. They're just two different experiences, which is fun. That's awesome. That's so cool. I was I, that's I gotta be impossible to think about, like knowing what frame you're in. Like this is the because the main aspiration and then the IMAX. I mean, that must have been an insane thing to think about when you're filming. God. I mean, we were always we always knew that. I mean, our you know our two our. our Two three nine was was our aspect ratio, but we were always were like <laughs> making sure that that our IMAX version was also going to be cool, um, and it is. It's very cool. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's so cool. Uh, Dustin, in addition to getting um, Avengers movies where entire teams meet up, I feel like lately through Marvel, we've been getting a lot of kind of just like one-in-one pair-ups. You know, Ragnarok brought Thor and the Hulk, and then we're going to get Spider-Man and Doctor Strange in a couple of months. And I was wondering what that means for Shang-Chi moving forward, because it's always one character being featured in another character's franchise. And as he gets more popular, is there any fear on your part of losing him to another franchise like if if you know sam raimi decides oh i want i want shang chi for for uh doctor strange 3 and you go well what what the hell like he's mine you can't you can't have him like how, how does that work and, and as a storyteller does that concern you at all no that doesn't concern me i don't <laughs> i don't i don't feel like shang chi is mine i i feel i i mean i hope shang chi is embraced by uh, by everybody and and i actually think it's it's extra exciting to see a character like Shang-Chi be embraced by the wider MCU and be able to, to cross over. And so, so that this, like, I don't know, this stamp of minority uh, superhero just starts to fade away and he just becomes a superhero. That's, that's the hope. Um, yeah. And I love that he's a package deal, like with Nora. That's I think that's a really important move uh, moving forward. So I mean, I'm excited. I, yeah, I'm excited for all the all of all of these characters. I think uh, I'm very excited to to see um, where where they go, who they team up with, and what their future is in the MCU. 
Uh, Dustin, I admire your candid uh, response during, I got to sit in during the press conference that you did a couple of days ago um, for domestic press. And you said that right prior to getting Shang-Chi, you had said something to your agent along the lines of like, do not, do not get me a Marvel movie. Like I do not want a Marvel movie. Uh, but you know, there are several filmmakers who have delivered origin stories and then stayed on board with their franchise. And so now that you've been through the process, I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, they give you another shot. Are you are you on board and you're going to do more Shang-Chi, more Marvel films? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, when I when I said that to my agent, it was um um I I mean, it was real. I mean, I I I was basically just telling my agent, I don't want to do those types of movies. Like mm -hmm. don't I I know that if I was getting to the place in my career where it's it's easy for agents to try to just push me push push me into that direction but i was not feeling like i wanted to a part of it was definitely fear fear of of um losing creative control of uh, fear of just losing my mind <laughs> being on a project that big um and i but i what i found i found the experience to be much much more exciting, much more fun than I expected. Um, and, and I also found that it was, I don't know, the process of working on a big movie was more conducive to who I am than I expected. Um, I, you know, I grew up on an Island, so I move at kind of a <laughs> slower pace than most <laughs> people. Um, but, but I also have, I, I just love collaboration. I love collaborating with people who are really good at their jobs. And, and this movie was extremely collaborative and I, I had a, I had a blast. So I'd definitely do it again. Awesome. I think De we can fit Destin, one more in. Yeah. Destin, I'll end this on this. Um, one of my favorite, uh, so there's a lot of themes in this film that struck me and the bullying element of it. Uh, and, and that was a really big theme I thought, but one of the things I thought was interesting was the adulthood idea and the idea of uh, Aquafina's character and Simu's character kind of running from adulthood and then essentially being made grow, made to grow up very quickly and become adults. And in, in, in this story specifically, so I was wondering for you, is there a moment in your life? Maybe it was as a filmmaker or just as a person in general, uh, where you felt like you had to grow up faster than you were ready for. And it can Maybe it could be it could be a, something to do with maybe making a movie of yours. Just curious if you felt like that switch and you kind of had to grow up really quickly. Yes, I think I think we all have um, many moments when we're when we feel that urge to like, oh, I may I need to get my act together. Um, <laughs> I uh, three years ago I had my first son, um, my first child, and that was. Uh, right around the time we were shooting Just Mercy. Um, and so that, and it was instant for me. As soon as I knew that I was having a kid, my my en entire worldview just shifted to how do, how do I, how do I create a, a world that will be the best place for this child? Um, and <laughs> that that theme is definitely something that that I've always kind of thought about but it just became much more in the in focus and while I was shooting this movie two months in I had my second child um, <laughs> congratulations yeah two months into production we we had to 
we had to skip. I I was shooting the next morning, and I had to rush my wife to the hospital. And we had our child in in uh, in the middle of the night. What scene? What scene will always be associated with the birth oh, of your child? Yeah, the Is next day. Yeah. Actually, it was actually like um, they were shooting the the scene where where Shang Chi is is home at his dad's compound and he goes up to that post we see it a lot and he sees like the 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 indentation from his childhood hits um and then he he uh sits down and has like a a memory of of his mom Mm -hmm. um and that that was a scene that i actually directed from my iPhone in the hospital. <laughs> Whoa, what? That's awesome. What, what aspect ratio was your iPhone in when you were, when you were directing it? Yeah, they had to turn it. They had to turn it. <laughs> to monitor. Ah, that's awesome. That's oh, amazing. Great what story. A great story. Oh, Destin, awesome. I, we are running out of time. We could obviously talk to you forever. We know you're on this global tour and talking to everybody, so we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. You guys have a great vibe. Good, good triptych. Hey, that's awesome. We'll Appreciate take it. it. We'll, come hey, come thank back you on our much. show anytime, Wait, man. Anytime. We'll see you on the, we'll see you for the yeah. next one. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you very much to Disney for giving us time with Destin Daniel Cretton. We're going to review Shang-Chi later on in the show. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, let's get to talking points, which this week is CinemaCon. And so, you know, I you guys tell me what you want to hear about, because I jotted down a bunch of titles that I thought were big. Um, and, you know, I could, I'll mention them each, and then you guys can kind of ask me what you want to know about them. Kev, you had a question already? Well, I, I just... I want to say thank you for all your coverage, because, like, it was, like, for mm. me, as somebody who wasn't there... Like you and a bunch of other of our colleagues, I'll shout out some other people as well. Brandon Davis, everyone, you guys did some, like, everyone did great coverage. But like Sean's like Tara tweets Hitchcock, about Tara Hitchcock did great stuff. Tara Hitchcock, the show. Tara always does a great job. Yeah. But 
like I wasn't there and I've never been to CinemaCon and CinemaCon's like a place that I I feel like I belong. I, I would love to go to CinemaCon one day just because I, I love the celebration of movie theaters and, and, and just the hype that surrounds finally seeing the footage and like Sean's coverage was like the way he tweeted about it was probably the way I would have I would have reacted to that footage. Like I felt like I was physically there watching it with you because I'm like that's how I probably would have been freaking out. Like I would have been like this is incredible. Oh my god, they showed this featurette because the the CinemaCon really is all about the celebration of why the cinema experience is so special and makes these yes. films so special. And you even had an experience we'll get to later in the show today where you saw a film in a better theater yeah. while you were there, and it mm-hmm. actually enhanced your score by a point. So I'm t- I just think the immersion that's displayed at CinemaCon is really important uh, in terms of how these films are watched and viewed. So thank you for what you did. Well, it was really cool to read it. Thank you. And I, But I will point out the fact that this was a very unusual CinemaCon because the industry, as, as high and mighty as they want to be, or as bullish as they want to be about you know where things are going to be, in the next few weeks, next few months, there was still this air of we we're not hundred percent. David, air. So that, that's my that's my question though. What I what I want to ask is whenever I think of something like Comic Con or or like a Star Wars celebration, I think of a group of fans brought together, a generally very positive attitude, saying, "Please give me what you've got." Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of you guys got to go out there to cover it, and obviously, a lot of you guys are fans. But a majority of the people out there are involved in the, in the theater industry. Sure. I'm curious as to how that changes the mood inside the room. Is it less of a like, please give us what you got, and more of a like, hey, what do you got? Impress me. Like, is it more? Is it less? I don't want to say less fandom, but is it like how how does the mood differ from something else you've been to, like a Comic Con or a Star Wars celebration? It's it's way more muted than a than a comic-con i was gonna you know. ask you like do people applaud after footage or, or or what's the vibe in there yes they do but but it's also very easy to play to that crowd to come out on stage and make really boisterous statements against day and date streaming or to talk about the exclusivity of the theater uh going experience or the length of the window these are all phrases that we've used often what was the um, mood for the warner brothers panel uh, hostile. <laughs> was it? Yeah, hostile. Because of, because of H2, but HBO they have Max. Given, Warner Brothers have given theaters more movies than any other studio? It's a, it's, an, it's a very unusual split because that is true. Every Warner Brothers movie that they have released, they've basically maintained their entire normal 2020 calendar with the caveat that the things that they put into theaters also went on to home video. Now, you got to remember, not everybody has HBO Max. Like, we sure. do make a, a big deal about the fact that, like, something like Suicide Squad or potentially Dune is going to be available on HBO Max, and that it's a play to get those subscribers to go over yeah. to that service. But not everybody has it, Isn't it only, sure. like, like, the third or fourth most popular streaming? So, like, I think, like, it's, Netflix, yeah. Hulu, Disney+, Plus, it's not Amazon that everyone, are all, all ahead of it. Yes. It's not that everyone has it. And I, I urge everyone to do this, to read this if you have a chance. Sean sent me a really great article that, that uh, Denis Villeneuve wrote about Dune. It was back in 2020 when the HBO Max deal was like announced that they were going to be doing the day and date for 2021. And I think what he says in there is so powerful about the idea of a film like this particularly, which is very, very uh, reliant on what it does financially in terms of what we're, you know, again, we all can sit here right now and say we're definitely going to see part two. But, you know, we're living in a very unpredictable world and you want a film like that to deliver. So it's not necessarily that not everybody has HBO Max. It's the fact that a film like that 
could be could be ruined by HBO Max. And I and I say that I don't say that like that extreme, but I mean it in the sense that like if you take away X amount of millions of dollars, millions of dollars from that box office because sure. people watch it on HBO it Max, will that eventually hurt a potential you know, and think about it, Denise Future as a filmmaker. These massive films he's making, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, didn't do what it needed to do to be considered a success from a financial but here's, perspective. Hold on, but here's right. two things that came out of CinemaCon. Um, one, the idea of what is a success now is totally mm, different. True. Um, Paramount was over the moon that Quiet Place two has made three hundred million dollars globally. But that was I mean, a you know, theatrical, theatrical only. For, for the sure. first three or four but, weeks. But two years ago, three hundred million globally wasn't even gonna move the needle. Well, you know, like that's like not that, a success. Wait, what did the first Quiet Place do? I don't think it did that much more. And than also that. the check. other thing the, the other takeaway while you're looking that up is that the what a film's box office is is no longer just the barometer of success. Alright, um, so Qu- Quiet Place Part One did three forty okay. without pen without a pandemic. Okay. Three hundred is so pretty that, good. That's actually a really good... I'm actually glad you brought that up. So, prior to pandemic, Quiet Place says 340. Yeah. During a pandemic, theatrical only, 300 million. Sure. But, you know, they don't want to see a sequel going in the opposite direction. But True, knowing, that they were, knowing that they were caveats, 100%. Yeah. You know, for the reasons why they saw it. So, the, the footage that is shown there is more meant to get theater owners excited to say... Here are the things that are coming because these are the things that are going to draw people to your theaters. Like right. the, these are the titles that we're bringing in order to get people super excited. But what was weird, because you asked about the Warner Brothers panel, um, so many of the studios that went um, normally in a given year, they will roll out what their movies are going to be and they'll have the cast come out and it's nothing but a, an assembly line of talent. Uh, that is coming across movie, the stage, right? yes, and coming across and saying, "This is why we we are excited about this movie that we have made for you." Um, and then they do a lot of press, and none of that happened. Like not none of that. It, at best, you got a studio head, you know, some some executive at the at the upper level, and the Warner Brothers one. When I tell you why it was aggressive, um, is because they sent nobody at all. They recorded their message and played it on screen, and their message was very much along the lines of. Hey, we've always been there for you guys. You know, we're we're the biggest proponents of the of the theater going experience, and people were laughing. Like people in the audience were were visibly laughing at their statement. But then they said, and they were right. Hey, man, we've rolled nineteen movies into theaters this year, and no other studio can say that they've done that. Yeah. And I was like, it's yes, that's really true. Can't argue with that. No, it's, a great it's true. Point. At the end of the day, Warner Brothers is still releasing theatrically, yep. which is which is great. Now, in a perfect world. Obviously, you know, pandemic, you can't you can't think about it like that. But in a perfect world, they would have given like a two or three week window, maybe sure. then one to HBO Max. But but instead of everybody else pushing back, you're right. Warner Brothers right. put put movies into theaters and That's gave not people a the bad option. point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, so Sony was up first and they rolled out the entirety of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, I can't talk about uh, it in specific detail, but what do you guys what would you guys like to know about the new Jason Reitman film? Why do you think, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that the only big release at CinemaCon that played in full? Shang-Chi also played in full. Disney played but Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi was, Shang-Chi's coming out, though. Like Sean's not telling week, you that he's already week. seen Dune. And then Paramount uh, played, I swear, I'm not joking, Clifford the Big Red Dog. 
They okay. played Clifford in its entirety. Shang-Chi, I understand, because that comes out this week. I mean, that sure. movie's been done. People have already seen it. There were fan screenings a week before that. Yes. Um, but Ghostbusters so, was the first, was the only super early screening. Let me uh, ask do you guys you normally have a lot of, like, surprise, we're showing you the whole movie while you're there? No. Is that a, no, that's no, 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 not no. a common Most thing. studios take up the entire panel with presentations of all their movies that are coming. So Sony, theoretically, would have done a Venom panel. They would have done a Ghostbusters panel and maybe even brought out the original guys. They would have had a No Way from... Uh, because they played the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer, they would have had Tom Holland and Benedict Cumberbatch come had out. Like, the trailer already dropped online by the time you guys got it in Vegas? Because wasn't no. it... No. No, they yeah, played it the first, first it. and then it, yeah. then it dropped right after. So, so for Ghostbusters... Yeah. Two, two things about Ghostbusters. One... Um, why, in in terms of like the environment that you were in, why yeah. do you feel that they showed you the full movie? Because they're super confident in it. They they think it's going to play really big, but, and they wanted to get some buzz going. Because um, they allowed social reaction to it, mm. so they wanted people to to say that they saw it and what they thought of it, and they wanted to let theater owners know because <clears throat> this is almost the the pre Thanksgiving holiday. It's like Ghostbusters and Top Gun Maverick are the two movies that are due to hit right before Thanksgiving. And you would assume are going to attract a lot of people to the box office uh, over that Thanksgiving weekend. Since you can socially react, one thing about Afterlife that makes me excited. I mean, first of all, I love the I love that Ivan Reitman's son. I, I call him that. We know him as Jason Reitman now, obviously, because he's made so many great movies. Thank you for smoking yes. and Juno and Up in the Air. And um, But he's still Ivan Reitman's son. You yes. know, and Ivan Reitman is one of the greatest filmmakers of our time that we grew up with. Um, so the idea of his son taking over the director's chair for a, yes. a, a film is, is pretty special. Um, so I wonder, I don't know if you can answer this, but does it feel like an Ivan Reitman film or does it feel like a Jason Reitman film? And 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 I say that because I wondered if, if Jason like allowed his father's style to continue throughout or does it feel like you're watching like almost a little bit on the, I guess, snarkier side of like the Juno type of comedy and like the thank you for smoking. It's a little it's a little bit of a different comedy style, I would argue. That is a terrific question. Oh, thank you. Because it, because. <laughs> It is very much a Jason Reitman film. Okay, so that that's interesting. So that's now. So okay, I, I know you can't get into anything else, but does that? So it it, it does feel like a different vibe. Yes, it definitely okay. does. It doesn't have the same vibe as the. It has okay. I can say it this way: it has more of the vibe of the first two movies than the 2016 movie does. Okay. It's definitely closer in tone than the 2016 movie is. Um, but it definitely feels like a like a Jason Reitman film. So, Sean, in the movie, Slimer, like, flies around, right? Like, we get Slimer flying around? He's called Muncher. It's a oh. different ghost. Oh, okay. Uh, so, whenever he's flying around, is he up in the air? <laughs> oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Don't give me the rap game. I'm all in. All right. Last question on Ghostbusters real fast. Um, yes. Because, because, just because I'm interested in knowing this. In terms of, like, I don't want to give this away, but... We do know the main cast is uh, obviously minus Harold Ramis because he passed away. But like, like they, we know they're returning. It's confirmed, correct? Correct. Yes. yes. Okay. Correct. D- this is the only thing that really bothers me sometimes with, with these films that then kind of continue on or get remade or whatever. I know this is a continuation of Ghostbusters, so it takes place in the same world. Yes. Does it feel like they naturally fit into the story That's or does question. it feel like they've been thrown in? just to be thrown in does it does it actually make sense because i did not as i i didn't mind paul feig's movie i know everyone didn't mm, yeah, everyone yeah. hated that movie i kind of yes. liked paul feig's film 
But I felt like the biggest problem I have with Feig's movie was that when Aykroyd and those characters were mentioned or, or show up. Yeah. It felt like it was poorly written, forced, and didn't make They're sense. They're like shoehorned in. Right. Yeah. How does this feel? It, it, it is, um, again, better in that aspect than 2016. Um, okay. they are, they are worked into the story as their characters. Um, but in my opinion, and this is the most I can say, uh, it didn't do as good of a job as I wanted it to. Ah. with the, with the main guys. With okay. Main guys. All right. That's where uh, I more. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, I want to talk about no time to die briefly because it's a movie that's been around for a super long time. Um, and they showed footage that we've seen a lot of hints at which is the the bridge scene with Daniel Craig laying down behind the the brick and the car goes over him Oof. and then he, he's uh, cornered by the two guys. I, I and still he, like move whenever I see that. Uh, yes. Is, is, is that the new Tom Cruise Mission Impossible 3 bridge missile shot? Um, when, he, when he's running across and then the missile hits shot flies oh, against the car. Shot. Maybe. Oh, Abrams, baby. But it and it goes to him diving off of the bridge, holding onto the rope. And then it goes into um, him fighting against a guy that's on a motorcycle. Then he takes that motorcycle and jumps up the stairs. And all these bits that are that are in the trailer uh, get mixed into the longer sequence. And it cool. really feels to me that Daniel Craig's uh, great bond, bad bond, great bond, bad bond <laughs> um, is is lining up to become a terrific uh, James Bond film uh, for No Time to Die. And, you know, it's Craig's last one. Uh, I think this is pretty much the opening of the film or relatively close to it. Uh, it started in the, it definitely started in the middle of a sequence, um, and, but the, and then kept going all the way through until what looked like more of an action sequence. But goddamn, it just looks like Craig is, is firing on all cylinders. And I think Carrie Fukunaga is a terrific, terrific is it, choice. Is it weird that I'm excited about this film primarily because of Fukunaga? Because like I, Listen, I love Casino Royale uh, and Skyfall is argue. You could argue Skyfall is the greatest Bond movie ever made. You could argue. You could argue that. And I'm sure people would probably disagree with that. But I was rewatching. My, my brother-in-law is a massive Bond fan, and I watched From Russia with Love and Goldfinger um, mm. a couple weeks ago uh, at home. And it's it's truly astounding how well those movies were made for the time in in terms of like just visual effects, but also getting so much of it in camera. Mm-hmm. And the Fukunaga footage that I've seen, um, at least in the trailers, seems to be very immersive in that sense. Did you get yes. a sense that you were watching a lot of practical effects? Dude, I look like Daniel Craig was going to die in multiple sequences. Yes. Sick. Yes, Sick. I can't <laughs> he is, wait. He is putting his life on the line. It does not he do look a true like... detective six minute wonder at one no, point. No, he does not do. Like not, you don't not, see Matthew McConaughey running through a car or something like that in six minutes no. and climbing a fence. No, but um, you know, in in the older Connery Bond films, um, it would be a fight sequence, and you'd see a much younger stunt double in there fighting. <laughs> like you don't see that with Craig at all. I will say a testament to those older films, though, and maybe it's just because of how great the performers were. I actually didn't notice stunt doubles in From Russia with Love. Mm. And I was just like, and I was paying attention to it pretty closely, but like they do a good job blocking that out back in the day. And like Connery. Connery might have done a lot of his own stuff. Connery was pretty surprised. He was so tall, by the way. I forgot how tall Connery was. Was he like 6'4 or something or something? I have no idea. Sean, I have a a question about a a movie you saw a preview for that isn't necessarily one of the big titles that came out of CinemaCon, but it's a title that, that very much excites me. 
and I say that now realizing I don't know what the title is. It's the next Scott Derrickson, Ethan oh, Hawke horror yeah. film. It's called and The Black Phone. The Black Phone. And the, the obviously the last collaboration we got between them two uh, was Sinister, which I think is one of the scariest movies ever made. Right, uh, right. They, did, they did a scientific poll recently that, that they figured out scientifically it's the scariest movie ever made. Um, and I actually I don't disagree with that. They, yeah, they hooked up like, <laughs> like uh, measurements to people. And did a thing, and it was like scientifically. I think it was like that was number one. Exorcist was number two. But That's I was insane. wondering if you could just give me a little preview so, uh, of that because yeah. I'm, you're, I'm always down for a good horror movie. It's these two uh, collaborating again: Scott Derrickson and um, Robert Cargill, uh, who they both worked together on um, Great Writer. Doctor Strange. Also, yeah, yeah. That's so they, they've been longtime collaborators. So the idea uh, behind this is that Ethan Hawke, who came out beforehand, Universal did a really great thing in terms of their panel. Whereas they got, um, since talent didn't come, they instead had actors uh, come out and who were, who were involved with whatever project they were plugging. They had Matthew McConaughey uh, talking about a movie. I forgot which one he threw it to. Uh, they had Ethan Hawke come out and they talked about the movie that they had coming. And then they would talk about the movie theater in their hometown that they loved going to see something at. Uh, and cool. then they threw it to, to they threw it to the manager of that uh, oh, that's theater. cool. And then the manager would talk a little bit about their theater, and then they would say, and now here's the new footage from... Oh, like, that's so cool. Jamie Lee Curtis did Halloween Kills, and she had a theater that she frequents in, like, Utah or wherever she escapes yeah. to. And she's like, I know this old guy. He's been there for 30 years. And uh, she, they throw it to him, and he goes, look, I saw the first Halloween, and it scared me so bad that I haven't watched any of the others, like, any of them at all. So he goes, Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis has Halloween Kills coming later this year, and I'm not going to see it, uh, but <laughs> but here's the footage from the new movie coming out, and it was adorable. So Ethan Hawke comes out, and he sets up the black phone, and he says exactly what you were saying, is that Scott Derrickson and I consider Sinister to be the scariest movie that either of us have worked on. Uh, Jason Blum, who's producing it, it's a Blumhouse film, Blum considers it to be the scariest movie that they've ever worked on, and here's their follow-up, essentially. And so um, Ethan Hawke is playing a child abductor, and he dresses up as a like a hobo clown almost. Yeah. It's a terrifying look. It is a terrifying look. Not like a Pennywise thing. It's not like over the top. It's more very subdued. Um, and he kind not of even like a like a John Wayne Gacy like a not even like a party clown. Kind no, of? no, no, no. More just like a like a depression era. Wow. Um, you know, clown clown who like lures yeah. kids in with like, hey, do you want to see a trick? And it's like a really, it's a very charismatic performance, but like in a terrifying way. Wow. Um, so he lures kids in. So he's uh, there's been a streak of kids that are missing from the neighborhood. He snatches this one boy um, and uh, puts him into a basement that has nothing else in it except for this black phone on the wall. And uh, Ethan Hawke is saying something along the lines of, you know, that phone hasn't worked in decades. You know, I can't think of the last time that it worked. And in the meantime, the girls, uh, the, the girl who is best friends with the boy who got snatched, she's running around telling people that, like, she had a dream about him of where he's going to be. And she's trying to get people to believe that she's seen a dream of where he is and is having a hard time convincing adults um, that her dream makes sense. But everything that she did dream is happening to this kid. So he's in the basement for an extended amount of time. And then after a while, the phone on the wall starts to ring and he um, he ignores it at first. And then it, it it rings once it stops. It rings once it stops. And then it rings and it's just a continuous ring. And um, he has to pick it up in order to turn it off. And he starts to talk to people on the other end of the line. And it turns out the people that he's talking to are the guy's former victims. And they're telling him what to expect 
and how to potentially avoid it. And it's nice. just disturbing. It's a <laughs> like short it's, story. It's based on a short um, story by a guy named Joe Hill. I'm, I'm reading this right now. It's a oh, New Joe York Hill Times is, bestseller. Uh, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. Stephen King's son. That's interesting. So, that, so apparently, the, is that... Is that that oh, sounds right. right. Yeah, that sounds right. Ad- that does sound right. This IMDb says it's an adaptation of a short story by New York Times bestseller Joe Hill. So wait, so Stephen King's son wrote the story yeah, for this? That's Joe Hill. He, yeah, he yeah. writes. The he's Joel an author that? as well too. No, I didn't know um, he wrote the. No, I didn't know. He wrote why didn't he name him Stephen Prince? <laughs> I was like, that's actually a really <laughs> great pretty question. Good. It's pretty good. <laughs> Gabe's gonna die on that, Joe Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds great, and I think it comes out in January. Jake, to answer your question. Um, so Jan- January, I, early February. I, I want to echo something because La- Lauren and I saw Sinister in a theater and I don't, that was 10 years ago next year. I think it was 2012. I, to this day, cannot believe that that was a major studio release. Mm. It's, it, it, it might be, and I, I would go Shining overall. I might put this above Exorcist. That's funny because Sinister- I don't- I don't find The Shining scary. Oh, The Shining messes me up. See, The Shining is scary because it's atmospheric, Mm. and I feel that disturbing nature. Sinister is atmospheric and brutal, and Mm. and The Shining is brutal too, don't get me wrong, but it's brutal in in kind of in, in, in sporadically, I would argue, and it's more psychological. Sinister is just psychological, but also absolutely disgusting like to okay. a point where like uh. i actually felt like i needed to shower after it was over like I, for our audience out there listening if you haven't seen it it truly is one of the greatest scary film horror films of all time it's well, hopefully they follow it up with uh the black phone so yeah. i'll check it out okay uh let's get to matrix four i'll tell you really quickly what happens in the trailer and then people are are criticizing it in the comments down below that it sounds like a rehash of matrix one don't love the title by the way I'm tired, of the, I'm tired of all the R's. Reloaded, Resurrections. What was the like, other one? Like, do you have a problem with all the Spider-Man homes? No, I'm just, I just feel like it. When I heard the title of The Matrix 4, I was like, wait, wasn't that the third title? It was, which was Revolutions. Revolutions. But I'm not going to lie to you. When, it, when I heard the title was Resurrections, whatever it is, I, the first thought was, wait, wasn't that the third title? Mm. I, I, I totally, because Revolutions wasn't great. And I think Reloaded's a little underrated. It has one of the coolest highway chase scenes ever. But get away from the R stuff. I like the R's, R's, no. but, then, but then that's then you can't. Then how come Spider-Man gets passed? It's different. No Way Home, Homecoming, Far From Home. I feel like that. They're like Revolutions, Resurrections, Reloaded. For some reason, it's almost too streamlined. No Way Home. Well, at least they have different. I don't know. There's different words. I don't know. Maybe it just the, feels different. The footage definitely stands it apart from the existing Matrix films. Um, it looks like it's shot differently. I need to go back and check and see who her um, cinematographer is going to be. I'll double check. Bill Pope shot the original three, though, right? I believe that's right. Shang-Chi um, DP Bill Pope. Looks but totally I, I different. Um, Pope. I'll check it out. You're going to say William Pope? How he's credited as William Pope in the, in the credits yeah. for Shang-Chi? Yeah, um it has so Keanu first and foremost is uh, in his John Wick long hair and beard, which I think is significant. Uh, he does not remember being in the Matrix or being Neo at the start of the footage. He's back to playing Thomas, the character that he was. Mr. He encounters uh, Carrie Ann Moss out in the real world, and the two of them have uh, oh. what feels like a Q 
cute meet, like a sort of romantic cute meet, meet where they meet they cute. shake hands. Is that what it's called? Meet cute. Meet cute. And um, they shake hands, but kind of know that they've seen each other before. Uh, I want to call him Neo. Thomas is in therapy, like Neil Patrick Harris is playing his therapist at the start of the clip. And he's saying, I have these dreams. They feel really real. I don't know what they are. Um, and then he runs into a character who recruits him. Oh, and he's he's swallowing blue pills. He's constantly, it's like a montage of him sort of swallowing blue pills to get through the, to get through the um, humdrumness of his day. Kind of like, it, it does, as I described the footage, I am, I'm saying it does sound kind of similar to the first Matrix. Because yeah. then uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen the, uh, shows up and offers him the red pill. And, um, you know. Does he offer him any candy? No, he does not offer oh, candy. Take no. the red or the blue candy. That would have been amazing. That would have been a lot with a hook on his hand. Yeah. Um, and then Keanu <laughs> takes it and steps through a mirror, and then he's back in the Matrix. And then it's a montage of like all the action set pieces, and you know we'll wait and see how the rest of it pans out. But um, that's where we no, are. Uh, no Matrix potential War. sighting of Hugo Weaving, correct? None, but there are agents that we see, but none of them Ooh. are Hugo Weaving. All right, DP update, DP update. So by the way, Bill Pope, who shot... The first Matrix Only film, the second Matrix podcast, film. Only on could you go, wait, guys, DP update. DP update. DP update. I don't know. Bill Pope's brilliant, by the way. And Sean, I know you're diving into your Spider-Man book. I mean, he shot, obviously, Raimi's films. He's one of the best DPs of all time. He's two. also he, Edgar. He did two, I think. He, he did two. He's also... Two, uh, two and three. Um, he's also uh, Edgar Wright's DP. He shot yes. uh, Baby Driver. All right. The DP on The Matrix, you guys ready for this, is John yes. Tall. Oh, do you know, I know that name. Do you know what, do you know what else he's done? Mm-mm. Last so. Samurai, Braveheart, Thin Red Line, Cloud Atlas. He shot Iron Man three. He shot Almost Famous. Oh my I mean, god! Dude has a sick, sick resume. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm all in. Good. And it looks yeah. really good. The footage looks fantastic. All right. Let's shift to this week in movies because we have some big titles that we want to get to, including okay, so the film coming to Netflix called After Life of the Party. None of us have seen it, so... Um, is it a, check- no, this isn't meant to be, like, a joke. Is it a sequel to Life of the Party? I don't think so. It's, like, Afterlife, like, like Ghostbusters Afterlife kind of thing. Uh, so it's probably okay. like a... So, so one word. Yeah, not after not after the life of the party. Yeah. It's Afterlife of the Party. Uh, That's... <laughs> it's, it's stupid either way. Uh, but on Amazon sorry, Prime... That, that doesn't get a pass on this show? I want to give you guys the opportunity to talk about Cinderella... Because you both are telling me that it's worth my time. Jakey, why don't you start? Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised by this film, and and we often talk about expectations. Um, I will say that I am a sucker for uh, jukebox musicals. I love musicals that use, like, modern-day already established songs. What are some Um, examples of what you're talking about? um, If you've ever seen... uh, This isn't a great example because I don't love this show or this movie. Uh, I was going to say Mamma Mia. Okay. Um, all right. Okay. All shook up. You know, like songs that you already know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie, like they break out into Queen. At one point, at one point they break out into uh, uh, everyone loves to, Queen. To Madonna. At one point they break out into. Ed, there's an Ed Sheeran song. There's mm. Jennifer Lopez song. You know, there's uh, a wide variations of music. Sean um, Mendes so, song. So Sean I like. Mendes song? I don't think there is a Sean Mendes song in there. <laughs> Should uh, be. But I also, and I'm cur- Kevin. I'm curious to see if you feel the same way. I really dug the humor. I thought it was very well written. I I laughed out loud actually a couple of it's got um uh, a very kind of like sarcastic sort of smart ass kind of element to it. 
Um, it's sort of a, a different retelling of, of the Cinderella legend, so much so that like the ending is completely different than any in, uh, Cinderella ending we've ever gotten. Um, and I was very pleasantly surprised. And I'm with Kevin. I don't know if we're going to get raked across the coals for being like in... Like, cause I already mentioned to a few people that I liked it, and their response was, "Really? Like you?" you and I went, "Yeah, like I, yeah, I really liked it." Kevin, get, back me up, my man. Well, this just goes to show you, like, what we think about a film prior to seeing it, and I think sure. in in terms of like, there's so so many Cinderella films. What's interesting about this film, by the way, the, the, I think this movie shot for four weeks, then it got shut down for the pandemic, and then they re-picked it up and finished it. The first four weeks of production were actually shot by Andrew Dunn, who shot Ever After. Uh, the uh, the Drew Barrymore Cinderella film from the 90s. Um, so just kind of a little cool connection there. And Kate Cannon, who's the director of this movie, I think she was a big producer on 30 Rock. and you know. She, uh, but this movie surprised the heck out of me. And I think Jacob probably agree. Like the, the movie kind of opens with this incredible narration by Billy Porter, who adds a, a phenomenal energy to the film we are about Porter. to see. Like he opens the film up and you're just like, oh, this is what Cinderella is going to be like and Jake was pointing out the idea of the differences this movie makes it kind of rewrites the the idea of a fairy tale and the way fairy tales have set up you know if you're a kid watching a fairy tale film and you and you're watching a character and you're thinking about your own life fairy tales back then were a little limited in terms of what they were saying to audiences I would argue and I think the cast would argue as well and this film kind of like opens that up and kind of kind of makes a lot of changes that are more in the modern era and modern time um Speaking of that, but cinematography wise and and uh, production design wise, when once you're dropped into this world, they're like these crazy wonders. They're like showing you like the world you're in, like incredible production design, like massive in camera shots, massive costumes, not a lot of CGI in terms of what you would normally think there's CG and built in. But like it just felt like a gigantic production. And how like, is I, she? I, really, I don't know her much at all. How is she? Camila Cabello, she's surprisingly fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Really. like very good in the role. Yeah. Now, like, cool. what's interesting about the film? My favorite character in the film was actually Idina Menzel's character, who's the mm. you know, the stepmother. But they really, really dive into more backstory on that character as to why she is the way she is, and it actually all makes sense. They do a good job with arcs in this movie too. I thought, and Pierce Brosnan was oh, Pierce great. Brosnan. There, there's a um, line that I laughed out loud that I feel like Sean you would appreciate because the. The Prince Brosnan is the king, and he wants his, his prince son to get married. And the prince is kind of pushing back, and he goes, "What? What are we gonna do? Like get married and grow old into our forties? What are we gonna talk about?" <laughs> I just, for some reason, I pictured you hearing that line and laughing. I don't know. That it just made me laugh. That's yeah, funny. It, it was surprisingly just really fun, and yeah. I and, and I don't know. I don't know. It, it, again, this all goes back to expectations that we were saying on the show earlier. Like when you sit down for Cinderella, you're like another. Cinderella film. How is this going to be interesting? And it worked. And Shannon McIntosh produced it, by the way. And I want to give her a shout out because she produced obviously all these classic Quentin Tarantino's movies we've been watching over the past few years. We're going to try and get her on Real Blend to give that producer perspective at some point. Um, but it really, I mean, if you think about that name, Shannon and kind of the work that she's done. And th- I mean, she produced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Hateful Eight. I mean, Kill Bill. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And then you do a Cinderella film and you and to me, that just should show you that, you know, while it's not a Tarantino film, the work that went into it from her perspective, what it's all because it, they care about the 
experience and sure. like to be there watching this at home i wish i could see it theatrically i think it, i do believe it has an 85 screen theatrical release oh wow uh, on, oh wow on top really? from amazon so, someone can someone reconfirm that but i i'm almost certain it's 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 amazon prime video on friday and then there's going to be about 85 80 plus theaters around the country who are going to show it theatrically um and camille cabello i thought she was great in the role yeah, i cool. thought she was a really good cinderella um even though it's not not necessarily live singing i think some pieces may be it felt like it worked it felt like you were immersed in it um and i didn't expect to spend this much time on production design and cinematography talking about a cinderella film but here we are and yeah, but if you do that right, like it's a great soundtrack yeah, if you yeah. do that right in a movie like this, it's it's supposed to be done right. It's supposed yeah. to go above and beyond. Yeah, right. But like it, in a fairy tale. But they they care about it. That's that when I watched what the movie I watched what came from a, a place of caring for the audience's immersion. Yeah. Cool. It didn't Got feel it. like it was just thrown together for for, really quick, for just for for money purposes. And I know we'll move on. Tell me like when you know because I I didn't look up ahead of what songs were being used in the film and there's a part where they go to a ball and all of a sudden you know like it's you it looks like you know sort of this big stuffy ball that we've seen in Cinderella a thousand times and all of a sudden the orchestra that they have starts going dun 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 and whenever they <laughs> yeah. start breaking into Seven Nation Army I was like oh my god like like yeah. at no point do you expect like everyone to do a Seven Nation Army dance That's in the middle cool. of a Cinderella ball it's very cool. Also, song choices are really interesting because they work for both adults and for kids. Sure. That's what I want okay. to say. Um, I, I don't have the exact number of theaters, but it is coming to theaters. It looks like there's one here. Cool. Yeah. In my Love mind. that. So they're doing a limited theatrical run, which is really cool. I think this came out of Sony first, I want to say. Yeah. Sony's oh, on, that makes sense. Yes. Sony's on the, um, is on the billing, like as it says, like Sony, and then it says Amazon Prime. Um, I remember when they right sold now, that. But this is a perfect example of a film that I think will do well on the platform. As so much too. as I think theatrically, I think I think people and families and kids um, yeah. like if you're if, you, if you're a 35 year old mom and you have a eight or nine year old kid, I'm just I'm just completely, you know, just guessing numbers. You're going to hear music that you like and then your kid's going to hear music that you yeah. like. And then and then imagine that mom then talking to their child or their father talking to their child about the themes in this film versus like you, they, they rewrite a lot of the way fairy yeah. tales handle characters, especially just it's very interesting. I thought They're very okay. empowering. Yeah. Um, I want to see worth because I missed it because I didn't get to do the junket. This is the yeah. uh, Michael Keaton film and the boys got Keaton for the protege first and then they got him for worth afterwards. Um, Jakey, I'm always concerned about 9-11 films that they can be um, overly melodramatic or mm. mistreat the material? How does, yeah. how does Worth do with it? Um, I, I actually like this movie quite a bit. It took a really interesting angle um, when it comes to 9-11, a story that I was unfamiliar with. And what it boils down to is that to keep there from being a massive lawsuit against the airlines um, by the families of the victims, mm. the... Uh, government wanted to get ahead of that potential lawsuit and go ahead and offer some sort of financial compensation to the families of all the victims of 9-11. Hmm. But then it boils down to, well, big how much do you give someone? Like, what is the value of a life? How, sure. how, do, you, how do you tell someone your husband is worth X number of dollars? Mm -hmm. And then it brings up a bigger question of, well... This person made a lot of money and their family depended on that more so than this guy did. So how do you tell someone that this guy over here, his family gets more? That dude's death is worth more than this woman's death. 
Sure. And you so, can't. It has to be a blanket. It but it was be. not. That's mm. the that is not. The, the drama yeah, of the so, movie. Yeah. So mm. Michael Keaton uh, works for a firm and he takes the job pro bono. And it is his job to come up with a formulaic equation oh. that determines who, uh, how, how much each family of each victim gets. Mm. Uh, and that's what it boils down. That's why it's called worth. Um, I was unfamiliar. This is a true story. I was unfamiliar with this story. Um, I thought it was a really fascinating angle. Um, it, 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 yes, it is a 9-11 movie, but it also, it's, it's, it's more 9-11 adjacent, I would say. Um, I, I was very interested in the story. I, I think because the story was so fascinating, I was in, I thought Michael Keaton did a really great job and I thought it also handled it very well. Um, mm. I am not familiar enough with what really happened to say, oh, it, it, it handled that angle of the story well or not well. Um, but based on the way to me they handled it in the last act versus and compared to the title cards where it says hey here's here are the facts of you need to know how it turned out to me the two went parallel and, and went fairly hand in hand um i i really liked it quite a bit it is streaming on netflix so i would say you know it's not one where i have to say you have to pick up and go out into the theater and see it i would say it's worth two hours of pressing play uh, on the weekend kevin what did you think yeah i mean it, it's interesting i have a i have a very <sighs> 9-11 films are really hard, I, th- I think, for a lot of audiences, but I-, I-, I have a hard time watching them without thinking, was this necessary to do a movie about, right? Sure. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not speaking on Worthy, I'm speaking on general, the idea of, a, of, of just doing a film that's 9-11 based. Sure. The only film that I really thought was brilliant in terms of, of a film that result, revolved around 9-11 was United 93. Um, because I thought Paul Greengrass told a story that needed to be told. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to 9-11, a lot of the focus is paid to the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. Uh, and and res- obviously, it makes that makes sense in terms of like what happened in those in those moments. But I felt like there wasn't enough attention paid to E-993 and what happened on that flight. And for me, I got to learn so much about that story through Paul Greengrass's lens and, and and him telling that story. So I was actually, I walked away from United 93 with a different understanding of that storyline. Sure. Uh, and I felt like, and remember, if you guys remember United 93, the families were involved in the process. I, I mm. remember re- like the actors would like meet with the family members and like talk about them. And it, it was a really, really special film. So to me, it brought to light a story that I don't think was talked about enough in terms mm-hmm. of 9-11, which is exactly why I liked Worth. Again, uh, what Jake just said was a really is exactly why I liked Worth. It was I did never thought about this part of the story. Like sure. how, what happens to the victims' families? What happens to the I mean, compensation is an interesting thing because it's the last thing I would think about in terms of 9-11 and kind of like, but it is a thing they had to think about. And as the movie tells you, as Jake was saying, there's this potential lawsuit that's coming towards the towards the airline industries that could essentially what crash our economy was kind of the idea yeah. of it, right? Yeah. Um, so to me, that's what I locked in. I'm like, I feel like I'm being told a story that I ha- I don't know a ton about, and I'm actually interested in learning this because I actually mm-hmm. want to know how the families were treated. I want to know how they figured out that number. Um, and I believe his character is a DC-based attorney, so that was a really interesting thing, obviously, here with the DC area, Michael Keaton. Um, He's great in it. I mean, he's 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 such a subtle, a subtly great actor. I don't know if that terminology makes sense, well, but it, it reminds like me Keaton, a lot, very much of like Keaton's in this phase where with Spotlight <laughs> and this and important um, the stories. founder 
You know, yeah. he, he's yeah. getting these little character actor roles that have some modern history or contemporary yeah. history, yeah. at least. Um, and he fits right in. He's terrific in these parts. Yeah. yeah. I, and I mean, and there's a really I'm cool thing in his career. Like Keaton does this really cool thing in the film. His character, like when he really wants to concentrate, he puts a pair of headphones on and goes to his CD library and like listens to music while he's figuring out. He's trying to calm himself down and, and concentrate on, on because the moral the moral question of this movie is what drives it. Mm-hmm. is that concept of what is a person worth, right? And so, like, as you're watching this guy, the, the beauty of Keaton's performance is that he feels like the audience. The entire time, he's like, how do I do this? And I keep thinking to myself, how is he going to do this? How mm-hmm. do you actually figure this out? And he has a scene with Stanley Tucci. Jake, you remember the scene? I'm, I, they were kind of like in a, I think they were at like a theater or a play or some mm-hmm. type of musical or something. Um, and they and, and there's a discussion that happens in that scene that kind of like, makes you understand the, the the questions that he's having. And I think the movie does a great job of making you feel that uncomfortable nature, but also you're learning something very important at the same time, something you may not have known before. So the job to me in terms of a 9-11 film, if they're making a film around 9-11, is it needs to, to, it needs to do something that tells the audience a story that we might not know a ton about. And mm-hmm. I think that's the real reason you make a movie like that, not for financial reasons. And I know the business we're in is financial, but to tell a story that enhances your thought process on the events of that of that day and kind of what people were going through. I never thought about the families in terms of compensation. It's just something that didn't hit my mind because there's so much going on in that day. So sure. now I'm glad I know about it, to be honest with you. I'm actually glad I know the story. So Worth is going to be on Netflix uh, starting on Friday. It also stars Stanley Tucci and Amy Ryan, in case you need a uh, reason to tune in. In addition Amy to Ryan's Keaton, a great actress, by the way. Terrific. I so love underrated. her yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, but the big title that's hitting theaters uh, and theaters exclusively, and I'm going to be extremely curious to see how this plays, uh, is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. What's up, Jake? I was going to ask you if I need to take my... Uh... Oh, no spoilers. There will be no spoilers, no spoilers okay. but if no, you okay. want to go, you know, unsullied, then sure. But but there will be down. no spoilers for the audience at home. No I'd spoilers. like to go uncapped, Captain Phillips. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> All right. No, so uh, I'm going to be uh, one of the big cheerleaders for this movie because um, the second time I bet that sounds so pretentious, but the second time I was able to see it before anyone's even <laughs> gone once, um, it it improved drastically for me and this is the this is what kevin was talking about earlier in that the theatrical experience that i saw shang chi in the very first time was a press screening here in charlotte and the theater that they um put us in was just awful it was a it was a smaller house uh in a in a, a 10 screen multiplex and um the uh screen was not as bright as you'd expect you know the visuals were a little bit diminished the sound was so low that um, the audio from Free Guy in the theater next door was bleeding into uh, the multiplex. And so it was just distracting. Like I was it, I was enjoying the story and um, I, you know, I was invested in what was going on, but I was able to see it at CinemaCon because Disney ran it as part of their panel and it was Dolby and it was um, a, a, be- a better screen and just a better presentation. And it made me appreciate more everything that was going on with the mythology of Shang-Chi to the point where, as Kevin said, I bumped my my rating up by a full star. Like, that's significant. Like, if a, if a 
director is hearing that, you know, a review might come along and uh, take a take a full star off of their rating. Like, that's a big deal. And they can't control how that gets presented, you know, in a press screening in some podunk market uh, in the South. So I was really glad I got a chance to see it again. It falls uh, into the trappings of some of the origin stories, you know, that Marvel has to go through. Essentially, there's a bunch of beats that has to go. But what I will say is that I seem to be in the minority. I'm turning off the chat because I can't pay attention to what Jake's, <laughs> Jake is playing some game with himself. Uh, I'm play, uh, I am love the second half. Kev, I'm way more into what happens in the second half of the movie than I am the first half. I think the first half is kind of like a standard MCU sort of origin story. Second half is when it makes a few big swings for the fences. And um, I really loved Simu Liu. I think that he's a terrific addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that the different places that the MCU can explore after the introduction of Shang-Chi is really exciting. Um, there are two mid-credit sequences that you should definitely stay in your seats and uh, and watch because they're going to suggest of where this is going. But um, this sets up for uh, Eternals in a way, not that they're directly connected, but just that it's a new character and a new type of storytelling that I think Marvel is trying and it worked to me extremely well more so the second time when i could better appreciate all of the um, action choreography and a lot of stuff that's taking place in the movie but i think it, i thought it did a lot a, a lot right um and just had a few trappings of like oh this is another mcu origin story uh yeah the movie's in, is really fun um i actually so i want to point out a couple things in today's action world it's so easy for filmmakers to be in the middle of an action scene and just do quick cuts and just kind of hide the fact that there's no choreography being done there that you could, it's so easy to cover that up in editing, but I think audiences are smart enough now to know that when you're sitting in a continuous shot, that you're, that you're really more immersed in that world because those edits start to mess with you a little bit, I would argue. So Bill Pope and who shot this film, you're sitting in a lot of the action. There's a, mm -hmm. um, there's a fight scene on the bus in this movie that is one of my favorite fight scenes I've seen in a long time. Just the way that whole bus scene was choreographed. Gabe and I were talking about how there was almost a little bit of an old boy type of tracking shot in that in that particular scene. Um, Simu Liu is unbelievable in the role. Like it's it, 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 and, and the idea of how he met, how the how the role came about to him, but he's the emotional core of the movie tied in with the action. And then Aquafina and his chemistry is so great. I loved every scene that they were in. Um, the score is fantastic. And uh, uh, Destin does a really wonderful job of like blending this beautiful, beautiful um, score that feels like it's from a different time. And then when we jump into modern day, and like, for example, you see Shang-Chi like doing push-ups and then kind of in entering into the world that he's in. We, we jump into these like hip-hop tracks that are really awesome. And I it's almost like a jarring jolt in terms of like where he is now and kind of where his character grew up. Mm -hmm. And to do that through score and soundtrack, it's all part of your subconscious viewing as an audience member. You know, to start off with a beautiful score and then jump into a soundtrack it just it, it, it in your mind it differentiates the worlds and kind of the 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 world that he's living in now. Mm -hmm. I know it's a little bit of a deeper thing to bring up in terms of like a, a Marvel film, but I think there was a lot of decisions that were made in the in the score process, in the music process, in the filming process that are all subconsciously making you immersed into this world. And Michelle Yeoh is incredible in it. Uh, Tony, I don't want to botch his last name. Is it Lu Luang? Luang. Okay. 
this performance is the best performance in the movie. He plays Shang-Chi's father, and he's kind of the through line in the whole movie. Um, mm-hmm. He's the one who starts the film. Yeah, the movie starts with ca- him. Yeah, and there's a fight scene with him in the beginning that is one of the most outstanding fights I've seen probably since, like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Just the, mm-hmm. in terms of how gorgeous the cinematography is and the and the scope of the shot, um, it is just outstanding. And I mentioned Crouching Tiger, obviously, because Michelle Yeoh, who shows up later in the film, is in that film as well. And we'll get to her when we talk about our blend game for the week. Um, but Michelle Yeoh, who shows up, I guess I would argue in the second half of the movie or the yeah. third act of the movie is, yeah. is, is great in the movie as well. Um, this was just a surprise to me. I, I, I love Destin as a filmmaker, obviously short term 12, the glass ha- as a glass castle glass with castle. Uh, Brie Larson. Yeah. Uh, I love just, just mercy. Just mercy was fantastic. Yep. But what's beautiful about Destin as a filmmaker is that those films I just mentioned, the short term 12 and just mercy and the, and the glass castle, those are very emotionally driven films. Not a ton of action is involved. It's very dialogue heavy. So what I think is he did is he pulled from that. He pulled from that emotional core that you have in those films, threw it in here inside of a big Marvel action film. So the action actually feels more immersive because you're more emotionally connected to the characters because you have a good director directing good sequences of drama. And I think there's a lot of themes here that are really important. The idea of running from adulthood, um, accepting who you are, embracing your who you are, embracing your family, not being embarrassed by um, who you are, being who you are altogether. It's like Tony has this great scene in the film where he's asking Aquafina's character about what her Chinese name is. Mm. And it's like this very revealing moment about this concept of embracing your family and embracing who you are, but also unlocking your potential. Um, I was just, I was astounded by how deep the film was. Um, I, and Tony, I want to argue, I want to get yeah. your opinion on this. Do you think it gives you, because I think it gives you something in the, that we've never seen in the MCU before. I think the action and the backstory is so different than almost anything else we've seen. Like, I know that like, it's supposed to go to some places that are the akin to like uh, Wakanda, um, but I still felt that it managed to set itself apart from Black Panther as an origin yeah, story. Yes, I, I saw a tweet that, uh, I don't know who said this, so I can't give them credit for it, but it was a really, it was it actually was really perfectly said. It was like, you're watching Shang-Chi and you almost forget you're watching a Marvel film, like kind of yeah. like what you're saying right now. Mm-hmm. And, and then and then a character like Wong will show up, which is in the trailers and a spoiler. Um, and then they connect it back. Right. Yeah. So like all those things. So it, I, I do appreciate the fact that we can watch an origin film almost forgetting that you're in the middle of a 24th or 25th MCU film. And then it and then it ties in. Yeah. So like Destin, Destin was actually given a really cool because Black Panther Still, as much as I love that movie, it still felt very tied to the Marvel world, I I would argue, even though when you're in Wakanda, but it was still kind of based off of the events of what happened specifically in uh, in Civil War. So I I think there was it it still felt like it was tied. Shang-Chi almost feels like it's its own movie. Yeah, it just it it just like happens to be. And I think Eternals is going to also I think Eternals is going to feel very separate. Yeah, so Um, we we, we love Shang-Chi. It's really, really well done. And Bill Pope shot the hell out of it. Uh, I very called excited. It, so I called it top tier Marvel and the people at Cinema Blend lost their minds. But I, I honestly stand by that. Top tier Marvel. So top tier Marvel, I would argue it's right there. It, uh, it, now, your top tier is a really hard thing to deal with because you're talking about Infinity War, Civil War, Winter Soldier, sure. Far From Home, Homecoming, Doctor Strange. I mean, like yeah. I those are my top tier Marvel films. Shang-Chi is right there. It's mm-hmm. definitely not middle of the road. It's definitely not 
lower tier Marvel. It's like right. it's it's like kind of right up there with the top tier Marvel. It was it was surprising how and also you have to give it credit for being different. It's unlike any Marvel film you've ever seen. It's yeah. it, it's and I, and I appreciate that Feige allows. You know, this is the last thing I'll say as we're wrapping up. This was like one of the few we, we discussed this in the show a couple weeks ago when a filmmaker's voice comes through a major film. Mm. Uh, obviously, when Chris Nolan tells a story, we know it's Chris Nolan's voice. It's his story, right? It's his movie. Even though it's a $250 million budget or whatever the film would be, you still feel Chris telling you the story. Uh, Chris Nolan. I don't call him Chris. Um, but in terms of this movie, I felt Dustin's, De- Destin's voice the whole movie. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to do in a in a film this large. And like like you could just tell it's coming from a place of love and family mm-hmm. and it's really important to him that he's telling the story i would argue the same thing with ryan coogler as you watch black panther you know you, you it's his voice it's his story um and so i think it's really important for for feige to give these directors the ability to have their voice in a story like this and to have mm-hmm. destin make this movie it feels personal and it, it, it comes across a lot in the in the dialogue and tony that performance i don't want to botch his name so i'm not going to say it best performance in the movie would you agree yeah, it's terrific. I mean, I, I think Simu Simu is Simu's fantastic, but, but Tony Tony, Tony Luang is is the is the he's the drama, he's the tragedy. You know, he's like, the core. There's yeah. there's something significant that he's going through that is the anchor of the uh, of the movie. Jake, you can join us back again. Come on, yeah, you come on, come on back in. Put your headpiece back in. You handsome man, for God's sakes. All right. So and in the end, when Shang Chi dies, um, it was the most <laughs> the most sad moment of the. F- oh, Dan Jake's back now. Okay, uh, let's get to the blend game, and we are playing Michelle Yeoh blend um, because she is a big part of Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Um, does, oh, I'm, can I, by the way, can I shout out the actor, the actress who plays the mom as well? I think her name is Fala. Um, she's the actress who plays. So at the beginning of the film. You meet Shang Chi's mom and and oh and that's father. her that's her and her name is Fala I can't remember uh, someone I don't want to botch it but she's great in the film and she's also a major emotional part of the film as well and I just wanted to shout her out because her and Tony have this crazy cool fight scene in the beginning which I was really really blown away by and I and I, I hope people talk about her performance more she plays the mom she's amazing excellent um I so for Michelle Yobland um so Kevin you go first and once you give your choice uh. Maybe we, we might all be weighing in. I, mean, I, th- I just think Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is like is the one I have to go with. And I think we all agree on that. Same. Yeah, have I, to. I, we all do. I mean, first of Jake, all... Jake, you picked that as well? I did. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, then, we'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll... Since Jake wasn't part of Shang-Chi, I'll keep mine quick so Jake can weigh in more on that. Um, I, I just think when I saw what Ang Lee did with that movie, I had never seen anything like that before. But the beauty of what Ang Lee does with Crouch, Tiger, Hidden Dragon and what then Michelle Yeoh brings to the table and Chai Yun-Fat brings to the table as well um, is this idea of while your visual and your action set pieces are absolutely insane, they don't work without great performers and good actors bringing the emotional drama to the story. So when you're in a fight scene in Crouching, Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's visually amazing but it's more visually amazing when you actually give a shit about the actual character that's sure. doing the fights, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, to have these world-class actors like Michelle you know, playing in a film like that, it, it ups the level of why that film works so well. That movie came out 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'm referencing it still while talking about Shang-Chi, 
because the visual style of what Ang Lee did with Crouching Tiger, you know, while I know that there's there are other films that have played with the visual style of that of the look of that movie, it was Ang Lee that brought that to my attention. Mm-hmm. Just that beautiful like flying and action scenes and just the way it was orchestrated. But then to actually, I mean, if you think about the director's job on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is really interesting to think about to me, because I'm, I'm reading this book by Sidney Lumet right now, just about all the details that go into a film before you shoot it, rehearsals and costumes and everything like that. But to, for a filmmaker to actually have the ability to tell a great story in the middle of all that unique action is really, really a testament to the actors he, that he chooses. Mm-hmm. And I just think Michelle Yeoh is outstanding in that film. I almost kind of went with Shang-Chi, too, because I absolutely loved her in Shang-Chi. She's so good in this movie. Um, but Katja Tiger is my, is my answer, primarily because she brought an emotional weight to just insane, beautiful action. And she's one of the best actors working today, and I'm actually honored that we're doing her uh, a bl- in a blend game, because... I think she's weirdly underrated in a very strange way. Even though she's accepted in the film community as a great actor, I don't think enough people talk about Michelle Yeoh. Mm-hmm. I think she just has a history that is astounding. It's a legend. So, yeah, legend. legend. Absolute legend. So, Jakey? you guys take it from here. Yeah, I mean, I just, just sort of um, reiterating what Kevin said. For something like Crouching Tiger, it's easy for any actor with that kind of uh, spectacle going on around them to get lost in it. Or mm-hmm. even, I mean, you could make the argument to me to be made better by it. Like, oh, like, you know, they're, I like their performance more because of everything they were doing. And I think it works backward for her. I think the spectacle is better because she's a part of it. Um, yep. And there aren't a lot of actors who can do that. Um, you know, even like with some, you know, Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Like, Keanu is, I love, I love him, but he is not like the greatest actor in the world. And I think he's really good about picking roles that suit him. And the right. spectacle of Matrix makes his performance as Neo better. Um, it's the opposite with, with something like Crouching Tiger, like any other actress in that role. And they would have relied on the spectacle to be made better as opposed to like, she's kind of the crux of it, um, along with Chiding Fat, obviously. Because um, you uh, care. That's yeah, the 100%. thing. You, you care. Yeah. It's not just cool. It's you care. Yeah. The spectacle almost becomes secondary. And and for a movie where the spectacle is as awe-inspiring as it is, to be secondary to a performance, I think, uh, says a lot. So uh, to me, it was a, it was a fair. I, I, there was a moment where I thought, like, do I try to go with Crazy Rich Asians? Um, because she, she dominated. In, in what is an incredible yeah. ensemble performance, she dominates sure. yeah. just about everybody. But I could not. And, and, and within my heart, choose uh, that over Crouching Tiger. And you know what? That, yeah, the Crazy Rich off, Asians. Jake. She's great in that movie, by the way. The Crazy Rich Asians part is such a cliched, you know, the the overprotective mom or the, mm-hmm. the mom who's difficult to win over kind of thing. Yeah. But she puts such a great spin on it, you know, that it's, yes. it's memorable the way she yeah. plays it. Um, the reason I have to go with Crouching Tiger is because uh, that movie doesn't work um, if you put almost anyone else in her part, mm-hmm. right? Like that's yeah. the defining thing of just, and, and I'd say the same about Chow Yun-Fat and I'd say the same about oh. uh, Zhang Jing. You know, like those three made that movie. Um, and when that movie came out, it's easy to forget that there, we weren't, they weren't making movies that way. Like Ang Lee's movie inspired so many films uh, that you know Jet Li's hero and uh, those are the films that were that became House of uh, Flying Daggers that became like these sort of knockoffs or you know something trying to cling on to the coattails of what Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon 
uh, managed to do. And it was just Ang Lee bringing over Asian films or a style from Asian films to American right. films, essentially. Um, and those three actors are so brilliant in it. And again, it's Michelle Yeoh brings a, um, a, a central power uh, in her individual performances that when she gets into a fight scene, because she has to be in, in a couple of different fight sequences in it, you go along for the ride. Like it's completely credible and it doesn't take you out of it to say that like, Oh, she wouldn't fit in this style of fighting. Um, and I think that a lot of the choreography and the graceful fighting, there's, there's two different styles of fighting in Shang-Chi. Some of it's just the straight up Marvel, you know, brawl. And then there's some that's like this, that they physically do like an open hand. Like they take a fist and they open up the hand and, and becomes more graceful. It becomes yeah, almost romantic. Like it's like a dance. Exactly. And I think so much of that comes from uh, crouching tiger and the way that that started this idea of like, it's almost a ballet uh, where people also just happen to get kicked in the ch- in the chest, or you know, I would go to that ballet, thrown from a tree. <laughs> yes, right, also, <exactly. laughs> gotta give a shout out since you brought it back to Shang Chi and Gabe and I were geeking out about this. Uh, I think we were on video chat the other day. There's a bamboo fight scene in Shang Chi that takes place on the side of a building that is like I would argue it kind of like has a very it's like, like a, 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 it's like that is it Rush Hour two it's like the Rush Hour yeah. fight scene only oh, on stage. Yeah. it's like the scaffolding in Rush yeah, Hour yeah, yeah. isn't yeah. it a scaffolding but the yeah. way yeah. Destin and Bill Pope are like navigating you through that scene with the yeah. camera like you're in these crazy cool oneers that are being stitched obviously with the bamboo and stuff but like you're there man and like and then going back to what you're saying Crouching Tiger like Shang Chi is better because of Crouching Tiger. Yeah. And the, and the idea that Michelle Yeoh gets to be in both, and she's, again, she's the emotional core, uh, kind of towards the third act of that movie, and she's wonderful. Yeah. But yeah. All right, so uh, Michelle Garrist and Tristan Clark also weighed in with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Jorge Olivos went with uh, Police Story 2, which I have not seen, and now I feel like I need to. I feel like the Police have Story you, films. Oh, it's uh, Jackie Chan. Yeah, the Police Story Dude, films. The are Police awesome. Story movies are amazing. Awesome. I've only seen the first one. I haven't seen the second one. You I don't think I've them seen them. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. You would dig. You would dig the police story movies. I think. Sean. Okay, so for next week, uh, you can reach out on Twitter using hashtag. This is a cool Criterion oh, collection. If you're interested, this is the, they're, they're both in here. One I've never two? seen two. I've only seen one. Is One's that, amazing. The only thing I know about police story is wasn't there a stunt? Was it a motorcycle yes. that lands on a train? Well. I don't know about that one, but there's a stunt oh. in Police Story, which is arguably one of the greatest stunts that Jackie Chan ever did. And I gave no, I think Gabe knows what I'm referring to, but just watch the film. I don't want to ruin anything, but there's a story he tells about a stunt in that film. Okay. Where I think he, like, he almost died, which is not probably, probably happened to him a few times in his career. But Police Story probably has one of the best action scenes I've ever seen Jackie Chan in ever. Uh, next week, hashtag James Wan blend. So Ooh. bring your, bring your hot takes for director That's James not Wan. That's who has a movie coming out called Malignant. So I can tell you guys a little bit of uh, behind the scenes stuff on it. Jakey, what? I was, I was just going to say, like, have you guys, like, I haven't heard anything about a screening or a junket or anything for that. Um, I think I can say this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I can say this. Um, I'll confirm before I publish. <laughs> All right, so hashtag James Wan Blend, and you can uh, send us your picks at realblend at cinemablend.com. And that is also where you can send us a review. And this week's review comes to us from 
uh, Ray Perkin, uh, Perkins, Perkin, Ray Perkin, who has uh, followed us on social media and weighs in, by the way, off. Yes. Weighs in often um, on some of our weird social media debates and likes to chime in. And he says uh, in his official review, hi, Gabe, Sean, Jake and Kevin, longtime listener, first time reviewer. Uh, I've been trying to figure out what I should say in a review for quite some time. So here goes. I discovered Jake back in 2012 when he did his Dark Knight Rises interviews and Kevin, not long after, Man of Steel maybe, and instantly became fans of both and kept a close eye on my YouTube feed for their latest videos. When the concept of a release the Snyder Cut book crossed my social media timeline, I was hooked and naturally followed Sean's social media footprint directly to the Real Blind podcast, which I have been obsessed with ever since. I've always been someone who has kept fairly busy between teaching, work, coaching sports, and various writing projects of my own, but I will gladly admit that the Real Blend podcast has become appointment viewing twice a week, including premium episodes for me. Through the pandemic shutdown last year, I was able to catch up on old episodes and stay connected with the new episodes, and now I make sure I carve out enough time on the episode release days to listen to them as soon as possible so I don't miss a single thing. I had created my own film blog a couple of years ago and had thought thought about venturing into podcasting, and thanks to your inspiration, I did just that. I haven't recorded anything in a while, but each week listening to you guys talk about movies makes me think, quote, I need to do one again soon. I love how I can agree and disagree with anything you guys can say. Disagreeing with Kevin about Fast and the Furious, Sean about Lord of the Rings, and Jake about some of his Marvel takes, but then promptly promptly agree with you about your Interstellar, Spider-Man, and Star Wars opinions. Your accessibility is pretty awesome, too. Getting a like from Jake on something I have tweeted because he follows me always validates whatever I've tweeted. And getting the opportunity earlier this year to actually interview Sean via email for my movie blog is one of my favorite things I've ever written. Kevin and Gabe, it's all on you now. The open yet respectful honesty that you guys all possess is much needed, and it's great to hear four individuals who are as passionate probably more passionate than I am about movies. Sorry for this long-winded review, but I just wanted to thank you for being a part of my weekly schedule every week, at least twice a week, and a special thank you for the premium episodes because the ridiculous things that Jake, Kevin, Gabe say, causing Sean to open up his belly laugh, is what brightens up my Mondays. Me too. Keep up the outstanding work. Keep making me laugh, shake my head, and high-five you all through the computer screen every week. The podcast means more to me than I think I can really understand or probably properly put into words. Thanks, guys. Thanks for everything. Ray Perkin. Ray and Perkin, up, that is a terrific... That is a great follow. Update, yeah. I followed Ray. Yes. And sent him a tweet. So now Gabe... It's on you, brother. It's all on you. Come on, <laughs> it's game. all on Gabe now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we're going to have a premium episode coming up on Monday. It is a this or that Star Wars edition. And Gabe has promised us it's going to be fun. Fun and not controversial. Um, so we'll see how all that plays out. But he hasn't built it yet. So you can get your premium episodes at cinemablend.com backslash realblendpremium. Uh, and that only gets you the uh, the Monday episodes, two newsletters, and an ad-free experience with your Real Blend uh, weekly show. So, in the meantime, follow listeners uh, on social media. You can follow us at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach, and the show is at 
Real Blend. We'll be back next week with some more exciting guests, some uh, huge movie news, and uh, more puns. Kev, the puns are back, baby. I'm very excited about them. I, I, I'm waiting for, for a good one to hit me, so... Give me now remember, week. this is a Spielberg bit because we're trying to get Spielberg okay. for uh, West Side Story. So does everybody okay, have their Spielberg movie? I do. All right, yeah. three, two, one. E.T. and the extra... You both said duel? <laughs> wow. both said duel. All right, I'm not going to top that. That's great. Wow. Well played. Well played. Nice what job. A, what a weird one wow. for both of us to get at the same time. I love duel, by the way. Oh, duel's great. I mean, you could God. honestly, you you can you watch Duel and you go, oh, I see where Jaws, Jaws. came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.